pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us a Savior who will hold us fast because we are not very good at holding on to you. And so we pray that you would keep your promise, that you would make the preaching of your word a benefit to us, and it would be one of the ways that you hold us fast. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 44. And we are going to beginning, we're going to begin at verse 24. And before we begin, I want to look at what the passage, how the passage shepherds us and sort of ask us a few of those questions even before we get into it. One of the questions that seems to be on the mind of the author and therefore uh, he supposes is going to be on the minds of those who read it is, is it fruitless to seek the Lord? Is it fruitless? Is it useless? Is it pitiful to wait for him, to obey him and trust him while the world is so sure that you're a fool? Or maybe even the world is so sure that you're a wicked fool for doing so. Maybe we should just give in to the desires that we have that the world says are okay, but actually contradict the potter's design for us in the Word of God. Should we fear the powers of the world? Should we fear the powerful men and armies and movements and, and social ideas that that seem to be coming like an unstoppable force on us, able to quench the church. Maybe, maybe we should be worried about being on the wrong side of history as we see these forces barreling down on us. Will we not be put to shame for seeking the Lord? This seems to be the question that is on the mind of the author, Isaiah, and therefore, on the people's mind who would be hearing this. But this passage affirms to us that God is the author of history. And not only the author of history, but he authors history, he controls history to be the redeemer of his people. And he doesn't simply say, just trust me and don't ask questions. He gives wonderful and powerful reasons for us to entrust ourselves to him while we wait patiently for redemption. That may take a long time to come. So we're going to begin by reading verse 24 to 28 of Isaiah chapter 44. We're going to finish the, chap uh, finish the chapter and finish actually the next chapter as well, uh, chapter 45. And in these passages, we're going to be introduced to a man named Cyrus. A man named Cyrus. Cyrus, um, in fact, Cyrus was going to be born 100 years after Isaiah the prophet, who wrote these things, died. And the context is this. So Judah, the people of God, are, they're under Assyrian threat. And the prophets had prophesied that there would be an exile because of the people's sin the people of God, the covenant people kept sinning against God. They did not turn away from their sin when the prophets came to warn them. And so the prophet said, there will be exile. 
You will be taken away from this land and you will be taken into exile. The prophets proclaimed that it would happen and the false prophets denied it. Oh, it won't happen. There will be no exile. But what would happen is that they would be taken away into exile. And the present threat, which was Assyria, this major empire that seemed unstoppable, would itself be taken over by another unstoppable power, which would be Babylon. Babylon would destroy Jerusalem and take the exiles away to to Babylon. But later, after this happens, Cyrus... Cyrus the Persian, he would unite the Medes and the Persians, and he would take over Babylon. This unstoppable, this unstoppable power of Babylon would be taken by this man named Cyrus with almost no fight. He would come in and just take over Babylon, this Cyrus. And as Cyrus approached, now we're a hundred years after Isaiah has, has, has died, Um, As Cyrus is approaching Babylon, and you've got all these Israelites in Babylon fearing this man coming, they would have this word of Isaiah, which was written many, many years earlier, saying, Cyrus is coming. He will destroy Babylon. You don't have to be afraid, because I'm going to use Cyrus to send you home. And so you can see what a great word of comfort this would have been to the exiles to read this, to read these words while they're in exile. In Babylon, as they hear of this unstoppable force of Cyrus coming to destroy, they're going to hear that Cyrus is actually the servant of the Lord. So let's read the first section that we're going to turn our attention to, which is Isaiah 44, 24 to 28. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servants and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, She shall be inhabited. And of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry. I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built. And of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Thus far God's word. And so we see here this word that is coming to the people before they go into exile so that they can read it while they're in exile and as this unstoppable force is coming at them, threatening to destroy everything that they had maybe, all the comforts that they had in exile because they were sort of getting established and this this threat Cyrus is coming at them as they're in exile thinking he's going to make things even worse. We're in exile, that's not great, but he's going to destabilize things even more. But imagine there's this word that they have amongst themselves from Isaiah the prophet, died many, many years ago, who says, Cyrus is going to come and he will accomplish my purposes. What a great comfort that is. Did you notice what he says, how he identifies himself? He says, I am your redeemer. He says he formed them in the womb. 
Now, he's not actually talking about each individual Israelite I formed you in the womb, although that is absolutely true. What he is saying of his covenant people, he's saying of this people, Jerusalem or Zion or Jacob or Israel or Abraham, he calls these people, he says, I, you are my people and I formed you in the womb. What he's saying is, you, to have a redeemed people was his plan. It was his desire. It was his goal. It wasn't their idea. They didn't use the word. They didn't conceive of the idea that they would be the Lord's people and he would be their redeemer. Who conceived, use that word, who conceived of that idea? It was the Lord's idea. And his plans do not fail. How do we know his plans don't fail? I am the Lord, verse, uh, verse 24, halfway through. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. His plans do not fail. He made the earth. He sustains it. He created it. This is not your idea to be a redeemed people. It's my idea. You didn't conceive of this. I did. You didn't form yourself, form the people of God by their own idea. No, I form the people of God, says the Lord. This is my idea. And he calls himself their redeemer. Now, redeemer is a very, very special word. It is a lovely, lovely name, although it's kind of an insult. If you need, not to the Redeemer, of course, but to the people being redeemed, it's a comfort, but it's very humbling. If you need a Redeemer, you are weak and sinful. You need a Redeemer because of a calamity that has befallen you that you have absolutely no hope of undoing. A Redeemer means that something has gone terribly wrong and you cannot help yourself. And God says, I am your redeemer but it's more than that because that word redeemer signifies family love now a number of uh, a couple of years ago now we went through the book of ruth and the book of ruth is a lovely story which in which the the command of god the design of god for israel of the kinsman redeemer, it actually plays out so beautifully. You get to see this actually happening. God designed the families of Israel that if ever they should, a disaster should befall on them, maybe by sin of somebody else or sin of the family, that he made it in such a way that if there was a man willing and powerful or rich enough, that man could redeem the family and it count as if that family had done it themselves. A redeemer. And so we have Elimelech's family in the book of Ruth. Elimelech's family had lost everything. A disaster had befallen them. You have Naomi who lost her husband and both her sons. And they had, they had lost all their land in the land of Israel as well. And they returned with nothing except her Moabite daughter-in-law. And do you remember the wonderful joy that falls on Naomi when she learns that there's a redeemer, that Boaz is a redeemer. He's a redeemer of the family. He counts as a redeemer of the family. And oh, that he'd be willing. If he would be willing to redeem them from this catastrophe that had befallen them, if only he loved them enough to essentially forfeit his own inheritance to save their inheritance and to save that 
family. And the Lord is saying, I am your Redeemer. You've heard of Boaz, the sweetest Redeemer you've ever heard. No, Israelites love the story of Boaz and Ruth. What a Redeemer. Israelite families, they, they wish that their, their daughters would marry a man like Boaz. The Redeemer. And they wish their sons would be something like this man. And he is saying here, you think Boaz is a good Redeemer? I am your Redeemer. And he says this to a people who were so sinful. They were in exile because they sinned so greatly against the Lord and rejected every prophet he ever sent. And he says, I am your Redeemer. Now you put that together with the phrase, who formed you in the womb. He's saying this. The idea that God would be the Redeemer of a sinful and helpless people was his idea. He has promised this. He conceived of this idea. He will make sure it comes to pass. She shall be redeemed. Now, just an aside here, and it bears noting, when he says, I formed you in the womb, this, this is not a passage directly about life in the womb. But it does say a great deal about it. Because when God uses a metaphor or an image, he's declaring what is obvious about this and agreeing with it. So for instance, when God says, I am a faithful husband, he's not talking about, hey, this is a passage about marriage and now you need to talk about being, no, no. But what he is saying is he's affirming, this is true, husbands ought to be faithful. And so when he says, I formed you in the womb, he is agreeing with what is clear and true, that life does begin in the womb and that parents should treat that life the way the Lord treats his people who he formed in the womb. A view, uh, a view that life does not begin in the womb in God's eyes would make this prophecy from him make absolutely no sense. That's just an aside, but it, it teaches us how wonderfully God thinks about his people. We have, to, we have to realize, first of all, how hard this passage would have been to believe. First of all, when it was originally given, there was no man named, there was no man named Cyrus on the scene, right? Isaiah died a hundred years before Cyrus is born. Okay, so this would have been hard to believe. Assyria would have been so powerful, nobody would have believed that they would ever fall. And then if you're one of the exiles way later who's, who's listening to this in Babylon as Cyrus is coming... You're thinking, this is very hard to believe that Cyrus, the man who hates God, is coming and he will actually be our rescuer. But God says his word is sure. Cyrus is my servant. He is sovereign over kings and he's sovereign over creation. And he is saying his, his people, Zion, which he's already called his bride, which he's already called his, his people, his beloved, they will be redeemed. He will restore them. This is a sure prophecy that ultimately they would return from exile. God prophesied this way before it happened. They would return from exile at the, at the hand of Cyrus, who he calls here his shepherd. But it is ultimately, it is ultimately proof and a prophecy that the bride of Christ, which is 
everyone who believes in him, the church, will be restored. If he restored Jerusalem after exile, if he restored Zion after exile, and he said it would happen beforehand at the hands of Cyrus, then so too we can be sure he will keep his promise to build new Zion, the church. And he will use wicked empires, wicked worldviews, terrible events, wonderful events, all of those things to build his church, to gather and redeem his bride. I want to just say a word to each one of us here. Having a redeemed people was his idea. So sinners, which is each one of us, the redemption of a sinner, weak and guilty, was not your idea. Your redemption was God's idea. He conceived of this plan, and your plans can be broken. We can list a number of our plans that were broken, even though we tried very hard to keep them. We weren't smart enough, we weren't strong enough, we weren't wise enough. But God's plans cannot be broken, and your redemption, the redemption of a sinner, was God's idea. So you can trust yourself to that plan. It will not fail. Our second point is this, and we'll find this as we begin the next chapter. The Lord's plans are specific, and they confirm that He alone is God, that He alone is Zion's Redeemer, and that He alone is sovereign over lovely and terrible events. Let's see if you can see this with me in the first eight verses of chapter 45. Thus says the Lord to His anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob, and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Beside me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open, that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them to both sprout. I, the Lord, created it. Thus far God's word. Kings and nature are not divine. Now that may be obvious to the people sitting in this room. Kings and nature are not divine, but... Sometimes it seems as if they are, have divine, unstoppable power. Empires and movements that seem like there is just no way they can be stopped. Can't imagine anybody could stop them. Cyrus actually seemed supernaturally powerful. The man could not do supernatural things 
but there was a sense in which people would have seen him as almost as godlike, and he was, he, he, his plans did not fail. Wherever he went, he just succeeded in his battles. Often, he would win without a single fight, and this passage is telling us why is this. It says God grabs him by the hand. You see that in verse 1? I've grabbed you by the hand. This means two things. First of all, God is helping him. When you grab somebody's hand, usually you're helping them. But the other thing it means is that God is directing him. He is accomplishing God's purposes, even though he thinks he's accomplishing his own. I want you to also see that God's hand is specific in his sovereignty. We'll read actually soon in Isaiah that it says God, he declares the end from the beginning. It means he's sovereign over all things. He was the one who started everything, and he is the one who will bring it to its perfect end, the end which he knows and has declared. But here we see it's not just the end from the beginning, but absolutely everything else. He called Cyrus by name. I'm terrible at pool or billiards. But once in a while, you might see me take a shot and get some miraculous shot in. But of course, it wouldn't impress you unless what? I did what first? I call your shot ahead of time. This is the ultimate flex. Isaiah the prophet what died 100 years before Cyrus is born, calls the shot. I'm going to redeem my people from Babylon, and I'm going to do it by a man named Cyrus. Everything is under God's sovereign control. Israel should trust God. We should trust God, not simply because somebody told us to, but because he proves he's sovereign over all things. As R.C. Sproul would say, there's no maverick molecule. He knows them all by name. He says, I call Cyrus by name. Even people, he says over and over again, though Cyrus doesn't know me, though you don't know me, though you don't know me. I don't care if you don't know me. I know you. I'm using you to accomplish my plan, to redeem my people. He's sovereign over those who love him. Thank God. He's sovereign over those who hate him. Thank God. But what does he use that sovereignty for? Now look, we've got to find a for or a, the word sake, for the sake of. Can we find that anywhere in the passage? For what sake? Why is he sovereign? Why is he exercising sovereignty over Cyrus? What is he trying to do? Can we find a purpose statement in this passage anywhere? Verse 4, did you see it? Why is he doing these things? For the sake of my servant Jacob. For the sake of Jacob. Israel. What is he saying? God is exercising perfect sovereignty over all things for the sake of his covenant people. For the sake of Zion, for the sake of his bride, every single thing he is exercising his sovereignty for the benefit of those he calls and keeps and redeems. This is why Romans 8 is such a sweet, sweet verse. 
all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. How many things? All things. And so what is he saying to the elect? Because he goes on, it's for the purpose of the, the elect, verse for, for the sake of the elect, for the sake of his dear people. But what is he saying? First of all, you can see this. He's saying, verse 5, that I am the Lord and there is no other. He's saying there's no other gods. There's only one God, the God of Israel, the God of the church, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Isaiah. There is one God. What other God could call the future before it happens? They certainly all try. What other God has exercised sovereignty over history for the redemption of his people? This is how he uses his sovereignty, for the good of his people, to show there is no other God. The only God that exists is your Redeemer. And the second thing he also says, verse 6, that my people may know, what, are they, what does he want them to know? From the rising of the sun from the, and from the west, there's none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Okay, we've, we've got that. What else does he want them to know? That I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. What is he saying here? He's saying that he is sovereign over the good and he's sovereign over the bad. He is sovereign over that wonderful new job, and he's sovereign over that job loss. He is sovereign over health, and he's sovereign over sickness. He's sovereign over people who love him, and he's sovereign over people who hate him. He's sovereign over a bumper crop, and he's sovereign over a completely wasted crop. Dear friends, he's saying, disaster is not a break in God's sovereignty. You do not need to want God to grab the wheel again. No, no, no. His hands were never off the wheel, even in disaster. This is God exercising control for the purpose of redeeming his people. He redeems his elect. He builds Zion, which is the name he gives to his covenant people, his bride, he redeems and sanctifies her. Third point is this. We are to humbly and patiently, it's a long one, <laughs> we are to humbly and patiently entrust ourselves to his plans to use all nations to graciously build and redeem his holy city. It's pretty long. It's written down in the bulletin so you can just copy it from there. We are to humbly and patiently entrust ourselves to his plans. Let's see this in verses 9 to 14. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms him, what are you thinking, what are you making? Or, your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens. I commanded all their hosts. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Thus, the Lord, the only Savior, thus says the Lord, 
the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other. No God besides him. Thus far, God's word. And so God has a plan. And his plan is, his ultimate plan is to build a holy city using all nations. We know that this is the Lord Jesus' plan to make a holy city, New Jerusalem, of all nations. People from every tongue, tribe, and nation he's going to use as, as living stones in this temple, in this building, in this city. But he's going to prove that ahead of time by rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem through the hand of Cyrus, according to the prophecy of Isaiah. And so you have these captives. They are in Babylon, and they hear these words. God is going to rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the temple. He's going to get Cyrus to make it happen, and he's going to use the wealth of the Egyptians and the Cushites to be able to do this as well. And wouldn't you know this is exactly what happened? After 70 years in exile, Cyrus declares the Israelites shall go back to Jerusalem and they shall rebuild the walls. They shall rebuild Jerusalem. They shall rebuild the temple and use my money and again the Egyptians' money, other people's money to do it. And that happened. God was showing his sovereignty over all things to prove that he will one day build a temple that will cover the entire world, made out of living stones. And these living stones will not just be Jewish stones, they will be people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And just look around you right now. He is keeping that promise. Nothing could keep that promise from coming true. But sometimes that promise seems long in coming, doesn't it? Why are we waiting so long for this to happen? This prophecy was given more than 100 years before Cyrus was born. Israel waited and waited and waited, and there's a sense in which they're going to start complaining, I don't like that plan. I would like a better plan, please, one that is quicker and one that does not involve Cyrus. I, that one scares me. And one that doesn't involve any suffering, please. Could I also have a plan where I'm not tempted to sin at all? I'd like not have to fight the flesh. Can I have that plan, please? I like my plan better than God's plan. Please hurry it up. What are the illustrations he gives to that nonsense? Does the pot shout back at the potter, Hey, why are you making me? Or, hey, did you know that there's no handles? I think there should be handles on that pot you're making. It's kind of silly. Or to a child not yet born saying to his father, why are you begetting me? What? You don't exist yet. Or to a mother who is giving birth. Hey, why are you giving birth to me? You're a fool. <laughs> These are God's plans. What is your responsibility? And to entrust yourself to those plans. To wait for them. There's many things you don't know. But let the Lord assure you of this. Any plan that you could conceive of, A, wouldn't actually come to pass, and B, is not even close to being as good as God's plan for His church.
for his people. Now, some people would argue with that plan for different reasons. I'm sure, I'm sure the, the, the Assyrians or the, sorry, the Babylonians didn't like this plan. I, I don't like that plan. And their prophets were like, it's not going to happen. Babylon will never fall. It's like, you can try all you want. My plan to redeem my people will take place. God is the designer of everything, everyone. And we can argue with that plan, but that is foolish. And 1 Peter 5, there's this beautiful sense. It seems like Peter is reminded of these things as he tells the church, which he says is that we are the elect exiles. He calls us the elect exiles. We're waiting for new Jerusalem, aren't we? We're waiting for the Lord's return, the full redemption of the church. And he says this, 1 Peter 5 or 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal, eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. He gives us another reason for why this plan is something that we would be foolish to complain about. How much is this redemption going to be costing the Israelites? How much? When Cyrus... When Cyrus frees them, he's sort of this, this, their, their shepherd and he's going to be the servant of God to do this. How much are they going to have to pay Cyrus back? What does it say? Nothing. This, he, he makes that point very, very clearly. I am doing this for, he says, not for price or reward. The plan to redeem Israel was one that's not going to cost them anything. It is going to be a redemption that is free and therefore it was even foolish more foolish for them to complain about that and this free redemption at the hand of cyrus was a foreshadowing of the free redemption that would be israel's and the churches at the hand of the lord jesus dear church we are redeemed by the lord jesus it was at great cost for him but it was at no cost to us. We pay nothing. We earn nothing. We contribute nothing to this wonderful plan of redemption that we wait in confidence that the Lord will bring about. Our fourth point is this. It's not vanity for God to reveal himself and invite us to seek him. Let's see this in verses 15 to 19. Truly you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he's God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord. And there is no other. 
I did not speak in secret in land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth, and I declare what is right. Thus far God's word. So, he's saying that he is a God who hides himself, and then he says he's a God who reveals himself, speaking things plainly. Now, how do we put these things together? First of all, what we need to know is that God has not hidden who he is from the world. Romans 1 tells us, and Psalm 19 tells us, the heavens declare the glory of God, the existence of God. Every single nation, whether they've seen the Bible, they've heard the Bible, they've met a Christian or not, every single one, they know in their hearts that there is a God who created the heavens and earth, and because he created the heavens and the earth, he is eternal, and he's all-powerful, and he is good, and he is holy, and he is the judge of all things, and we're guilty against him. That is revealed into creation. No one can deny that. Everyone is without excuse, whether they've seen or heard the Bible or the gospel. When they stand before the judgment seat of God in the last day, they will admit that they knew. So why is he saying you are a God who hides yourself? Because there are things that the nations and false religions really do wish to know. They'd like to know the future. They'd like to know how they can save themselves. They'd like to predict the future. Every false religion is filled with prophecies about the future. Or you can think about modern spirituality, which is coming in force, this non-religious spirituality, which is so common in our day, in our neighborhoods. Tarot cards and and palm reading and astrology. It's incredible how much this is. They're so concerned with, I want to know the future. God is saying, no. Every, really, every single person can know there is a God. But in terms of knowing the future and controlling the future, that and that alone is mine. And you have to go to my prophets, my word to know these things because they're not in control. They're not sovereign and they aren't the redeemer Though they try in vain to predict the future and tell it, God alone can do that. God is sovereign over all things. And so it's not vanity for God to invite people to seek Him. He's saying it's not useless. I created the world and it happened. So when I call you to seek me, You can do that. You ought to do that. It will not be in vain. The Lord says he turns no one away. What does it mean to seek the Lord? Sometimes when we hear that phrase, to seek the Lord, we actually take it as the opposite of what it means. Sometimes we think seek the Lord is we need to go looking for him and see if we can find him. No, no, no. When the Lord says seek me, he's saying seek me where I have promised to be found. I have been, I promise to be found in my word. In the gospel, in my son, call on me in the name of Christ. Find me. Call on me and you will be saved. This is what, where Roger read this morning. Seek and you will be found, or you will find. Knock and the door will be open. Ask and I will give to you. You're not to go grasp around in the darkness. Go where he has promised to be found in his 
gospel in his word. He is faithful to hear prayers of his people. And his word will accomplish those things in them that he promises to. And so each day that you think, I could, you, you know you should, you know you should go and, 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 and speak to the Lord. You know you should read the word. You know you should gather with the church. Ah, just not motivated or I just don't think it'll be worth it. And he says, don't think that I can't accomplish things that I have promised to do. I created the world. He has promised that seeking him will not be in vain. Even if you don't feel any different, seeking him is not in vain. Your feelings aren't sovereign. We've got one person who's sovereign, and he's pretty good at it. Seeking the Lord is not something that will ever fail. Seek him, and he will be found Read his word. Respond in faith to his gospel. Call on him and you will be saved. He promises to do that. But you need to realize you can't seek him and sin. You can't seek him and sin. Seeking the Lord means a turning toward him and a turning away from sin. And dear friends, if you have thought, maybe I'm going to try to do both. I'm not going to repent I'm not going to turn away. I'm not even going to ask God to help me with sin. I'm just going to try to do both. Well, that would be in vain because that's not actually seeking the Lord. But he has promised that he will not be put to shame who seeks the Lord by faith in his son, the Lord Jesus. Lastly, we'll finish off the chapter in verse 15. We'll see this. It is not vanity. Or sorry, <laughs> finish off verse 20. All nations will bow before the Redeemer of Israel, and those who turn to him will be justified, glorified, and grafted in. Let's see this, verse 20. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that can't save. Declare and present yourself. Let them take counsel together. Who told you this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there was no other God beside me, a righteous God and a Savior. There's none beside me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, for my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified, and shall glory. Thus far God's word. And we hear that the end of all history is every single nation bending the knee to Israel's God and Israel's Redeemer. And we see that this is fulfilled in Philippians chapter 2 where it says that the Lord Jesus, being God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, so he, he, he made himself nothing. He humbled himself to become a servant, a servant of God, yes, but a servant of his people to redeem them, even to the point of a cross where he was damned for their sin. And he says, therefore, God has highly exalted him, and at his name every knee will bow and tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. At the end of history, every single nation 
no matter whether they heard of God, the God of Israel, or not. Whether they hated him, whether they let every single will bow the knee and confess that he, the Lord Jesus, is God. Some of them will be ashamed, verse 24, to him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. It will be incredibly shameful. They will come with shame. But there will also be people who come as justified people, as forgiven people, as beloved people. Because before the end of their life or before the end of history, they confessed Christ as their Lord. And so they were forgiven. It's what the word justify means, that they were declared innocent. They were declared righteous by God. Not because of a miscarriage of uh, justice where God said, look, I just don't care about your sin. No, no, no. Even greater than that, because their kinsman redeemer came and said, count their sin against me. I am their redeemer. Their redemption is free to them, but it's not free. It's not free to me. It will cost me greatly. I am their redeemer. Father, count their sin against me. And that is why those who come to him by confessing that he is Lord now, by trusting that he died for their sins and rose from the dead, they can be counted righteous and glorified, it says here. They shall shall glory. That doesn't mean they get credit for what they've done. The Lord Jesus gets credit for that salvation. He's the Redeemer. But they enjoy the results of that salvation that they paid nothing for. Friends, if you're looking for to be on the right side of history, look to the one who's in control of history. If you don't want to be ashamed on that last day, then turn to the one who willingly bore your shame on the cross, your guilt, your wickedness, your guilty record the things that people know about you that you're ashamed about, and the things that no one knows about you and you are ashamed of. He is a good redeemer, the Lord Jesus. He's a better servant and a better redeemer than Cyrus. (laughs) He bore your shame on the cross. He was crushed instead of you to reconcile you to God. So that when the end of all history comes and there will be no one in rebellion against God, where he will crush all his enemies, you won't be crushed. Because he was crushed for you already, 2,000 years ago, on the cross. He is a good redeemer. So dear friends, if you are harboring unrepentant sin, while being a Christian. You need to realize you're not seeking him. It's not what it means. It's not like you're trying to seek him and failing. That's not what it looks like. Seeking him means turning away from being an enemy of God and turning to Christ to say, I want to be reconciled to God, and I know I can't, but you can. I'm trusting your death and resurrection make me reconciled to God. There's nothing more wise than to seek the one who alone is God and sovereign over all things. I wonder if you notice the invitation. Maybe you're somebody here who does not believe in God or hasn't put their trust in 
the Lord Jesus. I want you to know this wonderful invitation he has given. He, he says, go for it. Line up your worldview, your prediction. Show, can you show, can the people that you're trusting in the, to tell you how the world is and how it should be and how it'll end and how to get there, go ahead. Can they show that they have been sovereign over history? It's not just a believe because your dad or your church told you. No, it's believe because he's sovereign over history and no one else is. He's making a reasonable argument. Dear non-Christian, hear that. He's not making it to you in vain. Seek him and he will be found. Repent of your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus, the Redeemer, a much better than Boaz Redeemer, the Redeemer of his people. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful that though history seems in the current world, which will one day be history, it seems like it is so powerfully in control of other things and other people, and we see so many powerful forces of nature and of people and empires and movements, and we are grateful that you have always demonstrated your sovereignty over those things. And not only that you can handle them, but that you are actually authoring these things in order to accomplish the redemption of your people. And we are grateful that you have given us a redeemer so that when all sovereignty, even um, when, when all sin and rebellion is quashed and it will be very clear who is Lord and Savior, that we will not be crushed for our sin. But we have a Redeemer who has paid it all for us so that we do not have to pay anything. Lord, I pray that you would put our trust in your Son, our Redeemer. I pray that you would redeem us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.